Welcome back, folks, to Insights at Adepec 2022, where we're traveling deep into the minds of industry experts and influencers on the challenges and opportunities facing the energy sector. I'm your host, Amy Ironside, and I'm joined today by Mike Mayer and Ryan McPherson. I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves in a second. Uh, in today's episode, we're going to be exploring the unique relationship between the UK and the UAE, and in particular, how the countries with all of their expertise, heritage and ambition can work together to lead the way on the global energy transition. So just before we get into it, if I can ask you both just to introduce yourselves, Mike, I'll come to you first. Yeah, thanks, Amy. Uh, my name is Mike Mayer, and I'm part of our uh, growth and development team uh, here across our Middle East business. I've been in the region now for around 14 years, so I've seen quite a significant change and uh, never more so in the energy security and energy transition space now. So, Excellent, Brian. Yeah, first of all, Amy, thanks for inviting us here and great to be here on the with Wood. I'm, I'm Ryan McPherson. I'm the Regional Director for the Energy Industries Council, looking after Middle East, Africa, CIS and Russia. EIC is the UK's largest trade association, uh, looking after over 800 companies in the energy sector and helping them to win and understand business and export markets, primarily supply chain. And I've been fortunate, not as long as Mike, but I've been here for 12 years based in Abu Dhabi as well. Very good. Really delighted to have you both here today. I'm sure it's going to be a great conversation. So if we start near term, many IOCs and NOCs have set targets to reduce their carbon emissions from conventional energy operations by significant measures, even by as soon as 2030 milestones. The supply chain is focused on, uh, on bringing their expertise to drive down emissions while ensuring conventional energy assets do maintain their integrity and contribute to energy security, as you touched on, Mike. So how can the UAE and the UK work together to decarbonize energy while ensuring security of supply? Ryan, I'll maybe come to you first. I think you make the, the, the good point at the start in terms of the, the, the targets they've set. And I think if we take the UK and the UAE, both of them set early pledges in terms of what they were going to do, setting out their stall and setting out their, their roadmap. Um, the UAE here was one of the, the first countries in the Middle East to set a net zero target, which they, they, they've done um, in terms of looking at that as uh, net zero emissions by 2050. Um, and planning to generate 50% of electricity from renewables and nuclear uh, by 2050. The UK have mirrored that as well. Um, they've set out their stall very early uh, as well. They have a 10-point plan in terms of how they're going to get to that path to net zero, as I'm sure we'll talk about mm -hmm. during the course of this. The first major economy to, to pass a net zero emissions law in 2019. Uh, and their net zero strategy, again, aligning with the UK's uh, targets on net zero by 2050. So I think to begin with, the first thing that both countries did was set their stall out and say, we are committed to this and it is a, a joint commitment. This isn't a, a push. I think both countries firmly believe in what they're doing and that way they've got industry and supply chain falling in behind them. So it's very much government and people led. Yeah, absolutely. Mike, anything to add on that? Yeah, I mean, I, look, I, th I think the time uh, the time for collaboration is now. And I mean, I think you, you've already seen some really bold commitments between uh, the UAE and UK, uh, none, none more so than what they call the Future Energy uh, Partnership. And that's really all focused around how we get transferability of investment, how, how they can help to set policy and uh, tra transfer skills between both the UAE and UK. And I think we've seen some great examples just now around projects that are being kicked off in the UK, large blue and green hydrogen projects, which are going to be reciprocated here based on that government-to-government -government relationship. 
So I mean, the, the other thing I would add is, I mean, decarbonisation is not something new. It's something that we're very well equipped um, to, to deliver. And I mean, some of the stuff that's been achieved to date on decarbonisation of existing oil and gas infrastructure is very much part of the energy transition. There's been a lot of talk around green hydrogen, blue hydrogen, renewable energy. A big part of that is decarbonisation. And we've got some great examples of flare reduction electrification projects, both here in the UAE and the UK. And it's that sort of shared learning uh, in that early phase of the journey that I think is critical. So. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there, there's certainly no arguing with the need for accelerate to decarb while we secure that energy supply. And you, both of you touched on the skills piece. And it's fair to say that none of that can really be achieved without the right investment and focus on skills. So how do you think the UK and the, and the UAE can do better to promote skills and knowledge transfer while investing in the skills of the future? Because there will be some changes in that space, right, Ryan? So I think... This isn't really, for me, a UK or a UAE thing. I think this is a, a global thing. As, as an industry, we probably haven't done the best at selling ourselves. And I think you could go to any conference anywhere and that would be the case. You look around Adipec, there are some tr tremendous marketing going on of various innovations, products, companies, world-class, best practice. But as an industry, are we attracting enough people, first of all? I don't think we've hit that market and I don't think we have sold ourselves in the right way. There are still numerous misconceptions. So I think in that sense, there's a lot to be done right across the board. I think in the UAE, they, they have established, we talked about energy transition and what they've done quite well is not made it binary. They've made it the sense that yes, we are going to decarbonize. Um, they, they, they are very proud of and rightly so one of the lowest carbon intensity barrels here in, in, the, in, in the world. The UK haven't taken the same twin track approach because at the same time they're increasing production but also investing heavily in renewables. But you're going to need the people in, in order to do that. And I think there's a lot of research that shows that there, the skills that are being given in the, the traditional oil and gas, shall we say, are equally transferable into this new renewable sector. And that's what the UK has in an absolute abundance. And over the years, the UK has displayed some best practice in terms of skills going from the North Sea, or deep water offshore harsh environments, taking that subsea to decommissioning, to decarbonization, as Mike had said. So there's an awful lot of learning there, but I also think there's learning that can be come from, from, from the other side. But if I take a step back, I think as an industry a whole, we, we need to promote this a little bit better that will perhaps encourage the, the, the slowing down of the skills gap, which is going to be up, upon us. And in fact, there's going to be a skills shortage of people coming into the industry. Looking about here, I think it's fantastic to be back and seeing the volumes, 150,000 plus. But take a look at the demographics. You know, we shouldn't wait till the last day to see the young people coming in. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. And without, without putting you under pressure, how do we fix it? You got the magic answer. I, <laughs> I, I wish I did. And, 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 I've, and I've sat on this from a, an industry perspective, but from a personal perspective as well. Um, I, I have a young daughter that's just started her year one at university, doesn't know what she wants to do yet. And I'd love to be able to encourage her. And I am trying, or to, I'm not saying come into this industry, but what I'm saying is, is, is have it as, a, as an option. And I think what we, we, we need to do, one of the answers is like talk about the plethora of opportunities that are in. There are so many disciplines that you could come in 
to the um, this industry. And I think the three of us sitting around this table would all have a completely different background, the way that we've come in. But we all probably work in an industry that we're, we're passionate about and will continue to be so for hopefully as long as we, we stay in this. We've probably got a huge amount of transferable skills. We understand this industry well enough to know it's not just about getting oil gas out of the ground. There's some fantastic, really sharp minds bringing great stuff to the floor. The byproducts of petrochemicals are absolutely essential in everything that we do as well. And I think that is often overlooked. It's almost just looked as a, a fuel. It's a, trans it's a fuel for transportation, for a, a number of other things, and it's not essential. If anything, the last 12 months have shown us it is absolutely essential. And if I was a young person, I'd like to say, look, we're not perfect, but come here, join us, because we're going to need you to be part of the, the solution, because I certainly don't have it. It's going to probably be the next generation that brings it um, and, and help us, because this is a really open industry that are looking for that next generation, and they will train you up very, very well. Absolutely. No, great, great remarks. And I love your passion, Ryan. And Mike, I'm going to assume that you would agree with everything that Ryan's um, said. But anything you would like to, to add on that? Absolutely. I mean, I think it makes a great point. In fact, there's a couple of points that resonate with me there. I think the first issue is, is it, is it a skills gap or is it a skills shortage? And I read a recent article that Robert Gordon's produced, which is around the transferability of the skills from the oil and gas business uh, into new energies and if you look at the, the big three you know whether it be uh, carbon capture storage whether it be offshore wind or hydrogen that the, the conclusion is something like 90 percent of the skills are transferable Absolutely. the issue is we don't have enough um, skills within the hydrocarbon business to uh, to drive energy security so i think that, that's, that's one angle the, the the second thing i would probably say is you know is is, is bringing youth into the industry and i think you know, in, in recent times, oil and gas has been seen as a kind of dirty word, and you know nobody wants to go to university and, and, and study to go in oil and gas. But I think if we could somehow correlate decarbonising the existing infrastructure that we're going to need for decades to come, whilst they pivot into the energy systems of the future, which are going to take, quite frankly, you know, decades to put in place. If you're talking about things like hydrogen and, and large-scale carbon capture. So I think we've got a job to do in attracting young people into what is a really exciting transition. And that's exactly what it is. Yeah. It's, it's an energy transition. Um, that, and if you look at uh, in-country programs, um, in-country value, emiratization, or, or here in the UAE, it's NAFIS. Um, we really need to work out how do we embrace the local skills in the areas that we work, um, much more so here. Um, than in places like the UK, where I think we've got the abundance of skills. Yep. It's about attracting people to the industry is the biggest biggest challenge, I would say. I think I, I, I completely echo what Mike's just said. It, it, and that's maybe your, your low-hanging fruit. The, the, reframe the narrative. Absolutely. Reframe the narrative in a way that makes this industry more attractive for people to, to come in. And I think that's something that is achievable. Absolutely. And you, you made reference to, you know, the last 12 months really highlighting that, you know, conventional energy, new energies, it's not a binary choice. We can't afford to turn one off and turn another one back on. And I think shaping that narrative that says a future in conventional energy can mean a future in securing energy for the world um, is a really important one. I think we do have a journey to walk on that for sure. Maybe just one, one point I would add to that, Amy, is I think we need to stop talking about a job in the energy transition or a job in the oil and gas. We need to we need to treat it as one sector. It's skilled, it's skilled uh, you know, individuals that we need to come in to help the world 
uh, meet its meet its demands of uh, energy security and energy transition. If you, if you heard Dr. Sultan's open speech today, I think it's about uh, secure, affordable, and sustainable. Absolutely. So if you attract people to come and help to deliver that for the world, there's a lot of people in the world don't have secure and clean energy, and I think that's. You know, reframe the narrative. I really like uh, your terminology used there, Brian. Yeah, and long and secure careers as well, right? You help secure a net zero energy future, which we know is going to incorporate a balance of different energies. Your career is going to go with it, absolutely. Um, I guess you know, and the UA and UK and the UK can do a lot in this space. You know, the UK has an extensive history in conventional energy production. The UAE has some significant targets and ambitions around both conventional and new energies. So, I guess particularly particularly in recent years. And um, we're seeing more and more cross-border investment and greater IOC, NOC collaboration to drive progress on those kind of transition activities. How can the countries accelerate this and increase investment to drive more progress that we need at pace? Ryan. Do more. I think that, that that's Simple, the first part. It's, well, it's the, <laughs> the top line is, is, is do more. Um, and and you, you say the right phrase there, uh, Amy, about uh, at pace, because I think we... We've all accepted that I started off talking about these targets and that's that's great. But actually, these are quite aggressive targets to, to get to. And we're not going to do them at, at a canter. We have to accelerate the pace here. We, we're, we're about to embark on COP27. Uh, I'd heard earlier on today that COP28 is going to give us a review of the scorecard in terms of COP26, like all the targets we've said that we're going to meet, how we're doing. and. I think it's probably open just now. It's probably not going to be the most pretty reading, but that's okay because it's not full time yet and we, we've got time to, to make these things. So I think you're right, uh, do more and at, at, at pace. I think governments do need to be involved as, as they're getting in, industry as well, but also to encourage that investment, you're looking at some of the financial institutions, certainly if you're looking at energy transition. And I'm talking here about renewables pro projects, still part of the energy sector, but making them attractive for investors, making it so that there, uh, there is enough work for the supply chain there, Absolutely. that there are still margins to be made. At the same time, we're doing the right things in an ESG perspective, making sure that that's done. And it's starting, you know, um, I'm, I'm sure Mike will go on to talk more about some of the projects that you're seeing with the likes of Adnock, Mazda, RBP, Mabadla, the BPT side. But it shouldn't stop there. There Absolutely. needs to be more. Absolutely. Mike, anything to, to add on yeah, that? Yeah, I, mean, I think you, you, you touched on it there at the end. I mean, I think if, if, you look at, if you look at the investment, if you look at the outward investment from the UAE into the UK to fund energy transition over the last decade, I mean, Mobadla. You know, as a UAE company, we're, we're the first to invest in offshore wind in the UK. And they're the, the investor in, in three of the UK's largest uh, offshore wind projects. So I think that collaboration, um, A, to provide the funding, which is clearly what the UAE is able to do through the sovereign wealth vehicles, um, drives progress in offshore wind in the UK. And, and, and more, more recently, you see uh, projects like H2T side, uh, High Green, you know, Humber Net Zero, all of these projects are funded through collaborations of, you know, Adnoc, through Mazdar, through BP, um, and, and, and I think there's a there's a role that they play in creating that skill set. Mm -hmm. So the skill set will be developed uh, in the UK in these cases in these projects, yeah. and then again it's transferable back to the UAE uh, reciprocating projects. And there's, there's one of BP are talking about right now is, uh, you know, a significant hydrogen investment here in the UAE. 
on the back of the of that partnership. So I think the partnerships access the funds. You need the credible IOCs and LOCs and governments to come together because I don't think there's there's one single institute can fix this. There's no one single IOC can fix this. It requires everybody to come together. So the more of that stuff and the quicker that you can drive that, the, the, the better, you know. Absolutely, and, and we learn by doing, right? You start to see these and then they, they deliver and they build momentum and it's a model that we then replicate. So maybe just to challenge it, lots of opportunity, potential, collaboration, critical, what's going to stop us from doing that? What's going to stop these countries that have all the potential, all the experience and the investment potential? What's going to, what's, what are the blockers? What do we need to fix to get there? I think there are many challenges. One is maybe we, we, we've talked about pace. One is, are, are, are we set up for the, for the pace there? Have we got the, the right projects? Um, are we learning quick enough? And also, I, I think I've just recently returned from South Africa where it was a very different narrative there where you're talking about energy transition means different things to, to different people. It's all relative and, and there, there's mass amounts of energy poverty you know there's huge amounts of people that still don't have access to electricity let, let alone talk about the the clean tech uh, side of things so i think we need to to look at it as all inclusive and that some countries and companies can go at pace and others if it's a transition transition from coal to gas that's still a, a transition that has to be acceptable and I think we need to, to, to be cognizant of, of that going going forward. So I think there are, are a few challenges. Obviously, we've mentioned, Mike talked about what we're now calling the energy trilemma. And the one thing I love about this industry is that it, everything is it changes. It constantly evolves. It, you know, a few years ago, we were talking about the energy transition, which was a phrase that not too many people knew about. Now it's energy trilemma because everything that started within the um, what we, the, the instance that we've, we've seen back in, in Europe and elsewhere. But I think these things have got the potential to derail the pace that we're going at because I think what you had before was arguably the ESG or your, when I say environmental, social and, and governance, you're looking at perhaps the, the, this transition element. That was the loudest voice in the room. And I think we all realize that. But the events of this year kind of changed that where you have energy security now going, yeah, I'm still here. This is this is really important. And a lot of people had to rethink and, and governments and companies had to rethink policies. So I think on one hand, there's always going to be these challenges. How do we adapt to them? But at the same time, not derailing. And I think as we've, we've discussed here, without making it binary, saying, right, we have to jump back into this camp. No, we have to be in this camp. We're, in, we're all in the same camp. We all need to move along at a good pace that elevates the whole uh, energy, energy sector as a whole. Yeah, no, really good. Mike, anything to Look, I'm, I'm really upbeat uh, about, about what the future looks like, you know, for a couple of reasons. I think for, the, you know, the, the, the first reason I would say is because there's now a realization that the world needs that affordable energy, regardless of what that is, you know, to, to have 2.9 billion people in the world not able to cook not able to educate children, you know, that's not acceptable in a world standard. And I think that's, that's now being recognized with a backdrop of, yes, we do need to uh, reduce our carbon emissions, um, you know, uh, over the long term. So uh, I'm, I'm really upbeat about the fact that we've got the right 
inertia, I would call mm -hmm. it. And I think as we run into COP28, we're going to really see a more realistic approach to energy transition, uh, coupled with the, the demand for, for, uh, for affordable energy. Absolutely. Uh, I think the, the one area that's probably going to be our pinch point is going to be resource. It's back to that resource piece again. Mm -hmm. If we don't attract the amount of people into the the energy industry that we need, whether that's security or transition, then that's going to be your bottleneck because you're now having to do them both at the same time. And that's something that's a little bit different than what we heard 12, 18 months ago. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you touched on COP28, so it was a nice segue into kind of my final couple of questions before we close up today. Um, you talked about, you know, COP, COP28 is going to be a real test for us. You know, we're going to be expecting to see on a global scale some kind of progress on where we need to be heading. And if you think about the narrative we heard in COP26 just 12 months ago, we've moved on a lot since then. So we know a lot can happen in a year. So a year from now, what does success look like from a UAE, UK perspective? What kind of success stories would you like to see those two countries being able to showcase as progress on those big commitments that are going to help deliver a more sustainable world? So I think before even COP28, we have to remember we've got COP27 in, in uh, just a matter of weeks in, in, in Sham el-Sheikh. And I, I think that's going to be an important step as well. What I think the COPs have done, and, and certainly COP26 back in Glasgow, really brought it to the fore. Like many times, I cannot remember an ADIPEC before we were, where we were talking about COP. It never really factored in, but now it does. You know, if you, if you talk around, every, everyone's kind of aware. We, we talked about the Paris Cl Climate Agreement, which, which actually came out of a, a, a COP. Mm -hmm. So I think what COP26 did was, was hold a mirror up to ourselves for everyone, regardless whether you work in this industry or not. I think everyone had a viewpoint and an opinion, and you could see them carrying on. Now you just need to pick up a, a newspaper or do we still pick up newspapers? <laughs> uh, or you, you read something now <laughs> on your on your tablet? Yeah, you you listen to a podcast, or you 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 go onto your tablet. You'll see something there, and it's related around this because it's woken up a lot of people, and and maybe rightly so in the sense that we we realise this. So I think that part's held up a mirror to ourselves. If I take twenty seven and and twenty eight, because with twenty eight coming back to to here. I think it's great that it's coming to the UAE and the UAE is sh showing a, a real strong suit to it with Expo recently fi finishing here. And that actually had an element of this in it. You've know, you got the sustainability pavilion, a lot of other things. So I think what we'll do is it will give us a chance to look at where we are, see where our challenges, as Mike says, the pain points are, where we're feeling and how we can get to there. Cause we're still in the game. A lot of these 2050 targets are still there, but they're creeping in. You know, the, the years are going by. It's hard to believe this time last year we were in Glasgow doing COP. So, or, or, or at Adipic, you know, the, the years are coming in a lot quicker. So I think the mirror's been held up to us. We've made these pledges. Now it's about the execution element. And often that is the hardest part to do. Sure. Absolutely. It's it's almost easy to make a commitment. It's easy to set a plan, but it's then delivering it, right? Yeah. Seeing the results. Mike, anything for you for looking ahead COP28 um, a year from now? I think what COP28 is going to bring from us, bring for us is going to be, you know, I think we're, we're going through an, a learning curve. Let, let's, let's be honest. I think you talk about COP26 and we didn't even talk about COP before that. Mm -hmm. You know, I think, um, you know, the world is going through a learning curve. And I think the quicker we go from you know, talking about what we're going to do to having some real examples of what we've actually delivered. You know, I think I'd li like to see some early examples. I mean, the Waste to Energy project they did here, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's been a phenomenal success for the UAE, UAE using UK technology um, and taking waste to turn it into green hydrogen uh, to fuel the trucks. 
to collect collect the waste. I mean, that, that, that's a truly fantastic uh, project, and they've, they've delivered that on a world scale. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see more of these examples, you know, coming to the fore. And we, we move away from conceptual and master planning to to doing. Mm-hmm. And we've got some at great, scale. great example at scale. Mm-hmm. We've got some great examples of uh, you know decarbonisation now. Let's get some great examples of new energies and. and probably setting policy I would like to see in COP28. I think it's probably a point in time where you can really get the right people together uh, from, from the global uh, the global landscape to set a proper policy on how these could be um, commercialised at scale. I think that's really uh, what, what I would like to see coming out of COP28. I think there's two great points there. One is about the inclusiveness and I don't think we had that necessarily at COP26 where a lot of the, the energy companies were, were, were not there. And, and I think going back to my earlier point, we've got to be seen as part of the solution and, and not the problem. So my understanding is that that is, is going to be or is being looked at. So I think that's great. The other is if, if I go back to the earlier point about reframing the narrative, I think Mike's right in the sense that we need to see some of these early wins to show that we're on the right lines. But also the reframe is we, we coined it early on the race to net zero. And I think that was wrong in the sense that it made it like a, a race. Typically, somebody wins a race and then everyone else is second. You, you did you do you did well, but yeah. we can't have it that way. It has to be in the sense that it's the journey, it's the pathway, because it doesn't matter who arrives there first. We're all going to learn from each other, and that's part of what the cops are about. You know, bringing everyone in, getting around the table. How can we accelerate? Accepting that I may get there before you, but I want to help you finish. We all have to cross that line. It can't be that one of us gets, yeah, we've won the race to net zero. What, that, that, that's not the case. So I think that part as well, but I think being inclusive, these early examples, it keeps the momentum up, but also it keeps us enthused and it goes right back to our earlier point. The next generation will come in and look to build upon that. That's the, that's the gauntlet that's got to be thrown down for them. Brilliant. Great point. So I'm going to bring it to a close. It's been a really great discussion. I feel like we could keep it going for a while. I'll come to you both just for your final words um, and anything you want to leave um, with the folks on this theme. Mike, I'll come to you first. Look, I mean, I think, you know, we, we've, we've touched on a lot of topics here. This is this is a very complex subject to what, what we're really talking about. And, you know, we're not going to do it justice uh, in, in a short podcast. But I mean, I think, you know, pace we've talked about in the session and how can we get some of these, uh, how can we get some of these new energy projects really scaled up? And I think how can we demonstrate um, that there's already a lot of some a lot of great successes have taken place. The second one is policy, and I think how do we go from talking about setting policy to actually having some policy? And I think we're getting closer to that space, you know, as as it becomes further up the agenda on governments and IOCs and NOCs uh, in a bill. And I, and I think finally it's probably the people part of it. How do we engage that you know younger? generation to come into the energy industry and really help us make that difference because you know quite frankly i think that's, that's the legacy that we're going to leave for generations it's the, it's the planet we're going to leave them at the end of the day so pace policy people i think is, is where i would leave it excellent the three p's right i definitely echo the the, the the people side and everything else that mike has said i think it's it's keeping up the momentum between the uae and the uk they've had a long-standing relationship in the energy sector over a number of years. This is just the next chapter in it. We're gonna learn from each other. We've, we've talked about the various projects that are going in, more that will come back in the UK and the UE, the, the, the shared learning that will happen, but also keeping the, 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 the forums that allow us, conversations like this to make sure it's going forward. And 
we've got the, the, the UE UK Business Council, I've got an energy and sustainability working group that just published a white paper on this, the need and, and how we can accelerate net, net zero um, between the two countries. And, and it's co-authored by our CEO, Stuart Broadley, and the CEO of Taziz, uh, Khalifa Al-Mahiri. And, and if people haven't read that, I would encourage them to do so because a lot of work went into that from a lot of people and it does set out a bit of that, that roadmap. So I, I think the, the relationships there, the will is there and it's a genuine will, going back to my, my earlier point from, um, from uh, the start of the conversation. The big thing is just keeping that momentum up. Don't get in, don't, do not get derailed, carry on with it and then let's make sure that we have some tangible outcomes that keep refreshing our, our enthusiasm for this. Brilliant. Very good. So you heard it here first. Probably not first, actually, to be honest, but you heard it here anyway. The UK and the UAE could be an energy transition powerhouse leading the way on cross-border collaboration to accelerate decarbonisation and energy security. So let's realise that potential together. Thank you so much for your time, guys. It's been a really great discussion. Um, and we're going to be back here for the rest of the week um, with some more podcast discussions during ADAPEC. Thank you so much. At Wood, our curiosity keeps us pushing, innovating and making the impossible possible. Thank you for joining us on the journey. I look forward to seeing you later in the week. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks, Eamon.